When Jesus says yes, nobody can say no. When Jesus says yes, nobody can say no. The Lion of Judah has given me power to conquer everything. Hallelujah, day by day. 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 So if you didn't understand that, that's because it's, well, most of it's in English, but parts of it is in, what's the language that was in? Luganda. Okay, so. If you can't figure out where maybe that language is from, it's Uganda, and I'm here with the director of the Ugandan Water Project, James. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks a lot. So, I met James, oh god, how, it was almost three years ago now. Yeah, two, yeah, three years ago. Yep. And so, I'm out, our church has this almost like a flea market sale. I'm out in the garage trying to peddle used furniture on people to raise money for our church budget, and we see this guy walking up, staring at this storage tote it's like all steamboat tote that yeah. we have been trying to sell for about three sales and it was way overpriced i think they had it priced at like 150 dollars yeah, he, he, like he looked at it for two days straight and finally we we get talking to this person and we're like oh man it's like we're just gonna give it to you it's like right, we're never gonna right. sell this thing anyway we'll just give it to you and so from that we got to know more about your project and we've got to know you so tell us just real basically what the Ugandan Water Project is. Yeah, thanks, Devin. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, the Ugandan Water Project is a nonprofit organization that uh, works with sponsors here in the United States to help provide drinking water resources for communities in Uganda. And so we work with uh, sponsors like churches, uh, schools, college campuses, organiza organizations like Rotary, families and individuals, and they uh, commit to raising money to completely fund a specific water project uh, in a specific community in Uganda. So we have a whole team of Ugandans that we work with that we've targeted uh, literally hundreds of communities that need water. And uh, our primary installation is rainwater collection systems. And so currently, uh, over the last few years, we've been able to uh, work in 70 different communities and we've been able to bring clean water to about 32,000 people. So what, so Explain the for those of you that don't know anything about the Uganda Water Project. Explain a little bit what the rainwater collection tank is and how that's different from things that other people are doing. Okay, yeah. So you know, as an American, usually what's intuitive to us when we think about needing a water resource, um, we usually assume wells. And you know, in large parts of the world, I mean, wells are very effective. The challenge is, particularly in Uganda, wells are expensive. You know, you're talking sometimes fifteen, eighteen, twenty thousand dollars to drill a well and uh, and it's just complicated and complex and there's a lot of mechanization that has to happen to do that and to maintain it sometimes. Um, rainwater collection on the other hand is extremely simple. Now it's not always viable everywhere in the world obviously but Uganda's it's tropical it's right on the equator and they get a tremendous amount of rain and so these systems are very simple it basically consists of a large 
plastic tank. It looks like a big black cylinder. Um, it's about 2,500 gallons and it sits on a cement base and it goes right next to a building, a uh, community building like a church, a school, a clinic, something with a decent sized metal roof. And, that, and we use that roof as the, catch, the catchment for the water. So it rains onto the roof and we install a gutter system and a, a trap to take out debris and, and the stuff that we don't want in the water. And then it goes into the tank. And from there, there's a tap at the bottom and people in the community come and fill their, fill their jerry cans. So it's very, very simple. There's no moving parts, there's no mechanization, there's no consumable fuels. It's really, really simple and it goes in very fast and lasts a long time. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea, for sure. And then, <laughs> it, and then it works. Is using something basically. Now I'm guessing that when you were growing up, you didn't think, one of these days I'm gonna help build water tanks <laughs> in Africa. So, no. What did you want to be growing up? Like, first of all, are you, are you from the upstate New York area? Uh, more of the central New York, but not so not far. You know, I, I grew up most of my life in uh, the Ithaca area in the Finger Lakes, and uh, and so then I came up to the Rochester area for college, and uh, you know, met my wife here, and this is where we end up staying. And uh, so I'm not far from here in my roots. Um, but yeah, you know, growing up. You know, even at a high school, I, you know, I, I really had a real interest in other cultures. So I knew I wanted to do something internationally if I could. Mm -hmm. um, so even I can remember in the middle of high school starting to get an itch for just wanting to travel. And, you know, I thought I wanted to do some kind of uh, some kind of international work, but I wasn't really sure. And uh, but of course, you know, I went through college and I you know majored in religion and philosophy and psychology. And, you know, I liked thinking about, you know, why people do things and, and things like that. And once I got married right out of college, you know, immediately you're thinking, oh, geez, I got, I got bills to pay. <laughs> and that make kind of stuff. money. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of, uh, you know, prioritized trying to establish our household. You know, we started having kids and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, the, the, immediate, the, the immediate need of caring for your family kind of, uh, you know, drew my attention away from, you know, traveling the globe. <laughs> yeah. So now with a religion and philosophy degree, you know, it's tough to get a job using that degree unless you end up becoming a professor or working in ministry. So what did you do with that degree to, to support your family to begin with? Nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, so I looked through the, through the want ads for Philosopher King. And Philosopher I King? Yeah, and I didn't see any positions open for Philosopher King. So uh, I realized that the golden age of Greece was gone. And, um, you know, basically, <laughs> um, oddly enough, it was my job as a student as a student worker at my college bookstore that actually got me a job at, uh, at a, a really great college bookstore at uh, Cornell University um, in, their, in their purchasing department. And, uh, you know, that was kind of, you know, so my experience in college helped me to get a job, <laughs> but it wasn't my degree yeah. necessarily. Um, and oddly enough, those things have both come together now to contribute to the skills I need for what I do now. So you start working with, uh, over with Cornell. Yeah. Like now, I thought I remembered you telling me at one time you were working with a vineyard. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, this I'm, is a strange. This is a strange. I, well, I guess I can see if you're really into communion, I can see how you go from religion <laughs> and philosophy straight to vineyard. Yeah, yeah. But that's not usually the way that we, we move path. this. So we've got religion, philosophy to book purchasing. Yeah. Just somehow, so how do we move into so from grapes? the from the purchasing you know department that I was I was assisting in at Cornell, um, I then got a job uh, as a purchasing agent for Casa Larga Vineyards, a winery in the Rochester area, and um, 
was a family-owned place, and uh, you know, just a fascinating field to work in. And um, and you know, and I, it it was a good group of people to be working with. And uh, and so it was the, it was that purchasing connection that you know I had experience in a purchasing department, and now I could be a purchasing mm-hmm. agent. And um, oddly enough, it's amazing what you can learn when you're you know working in a vineyard. You know, the agricultural yeah. side of it, and you know, honestly, there's a lot connected to our faith that's symbolically represented in that whole yeah, process. I'm not sure how this has happened. We're at episode two, and both episodes have somehow brought up alcohol in some way. The first episode, <laughs> we've got somebody at a church at a bar, and now we're talking about somebody at a vineyard. It, it's interesting because in America, we have such this strange history of alcohol and religion to the point that we outlaw alcohol in the United States. And so... I don't want to get into any sort of debate <laughs> philosophically. I'm just wondering, you know, being somebody who is obviously of faith and that mattered quite a bit to you and that you majored in religion. Yeah, yeah. What was the response to somebody that you're working in some sort of field with alcohol? How did that go over, I guess, with your, your faith back? Because your faith background is is more a kind of Pentecostal background. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I can remember... Uh, Early on, when I was working at the winery, um, we had just moved back up into this area from uh, the Ithaca area, my wife and I, and um, I remember um, one of our uh, pastors at the church I was going to at the time, who's a, a fairly conservative gentleman that I respect a lot, and he was asking, so, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And I told him where, and where I was working, and he goes, well, you know, but you don't drink, do you? And I said, well, only professionally. <laughs> and um, Only professionally. And I realize there's a lot of opinions out there, but, you know, basically, uh, you know, without, like you said, without really getting into this um, and distracting us from uh, talking about other things, um, you know, my perspective was, you know, I had peace with what I was doing and, uh, you know, it was a fascinating experience, you know, to understand, um, you know, it really brought certain things in my faith to life. When when the scripture talks about certain things, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, it refers in one part of uh, the Old Testament about how... Uh, Moab has become embittered because no one has come to pour her from vessel to vessel. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Well, when you really understand, that's a reference to the racking process in mm-hmm. um, in winemaking, where you're racking the wine, you're pouring as as it's aging, um, you're pouring it off the top so it's not on the lees, on the waste, um, because if you leave it there, it will become bitter, and you have to you have to pour it off and leave things behind. You have to leave the waste behind. Huh. Um, in order for it to become the refined product it's supposed to be. And so there's things that actually, you know, take on a lot more meaning because I've been, you know, in it, you know, up to my elbows and understood what it means to, what it means to, to prune a vine, what it means to see things crushed and, and to go through that whole process, you know, hey, I didn't pick the metaphors in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, someone that knows a lot more about, you know, running the universe did. And, um, and so there's a lot of richness um, to my faith bec- that I understand more because of that job. So it's, it's an interesting place. So for all of the pastors out there, there's a great sermon reference for you so you can seem super smart the next time you, <laughs> you, you, you do some sort of sermon analogy. But all right, so now before we get back to kind of how you get involved with the Uganda Water Project, sure. uh, I just did a message dealing with table, dealing with communion and kind of how our faith is really built around the table and how... Uh, meals and everything separated. Oh yeah. So, so you you've worked in a vineyard, uh, which is something that the Bible obviously speaks about. This is something that is a gathering. Wine is a way that we gather. It's something that's yeah. very corporate to our faith. But with speaking about the table, 
um, or something that creates this community connection. Mm-hmm. Typically, I found from discussing people in Africa, uh, I have somebody in my church who does Zululand work. Uh, mm-hmm. They work with the hospice. And because of apartheid and everything that's gone on in South Africa, people of Caucasian and African heritage, it's just that we have this weird imbalance. And she's, she was telling me that the table is what helped bridge that gap. What is it when you're going over to Uganda? What is it that seems to be this automatic community connection? Something that you can say, okay, we can invite somebody to this or we can do this and we're automatically making connections. So like in the South, you invite somebody over for dinner or you bake them a casserole, an automatic connection that's going to create some sort of community, break down some sort of barrier so you can get to know the person. What is it in Uganda that's automatically, you know, that barrier breaker so you get to know the person? Well, I think certain things like that are, are very universal. You know, the reality is, you know, when you share a meal together, um, you know, it's there's a certain level of intimacy. You know, it's something that we, it's, it's necessary to sustain all of life. You know, you have to eat to live. And, and you know, there's something that is, you know, much more intimate about sharing a meal with somebody that you can't do in a meeting. Yeah. You know, I've always said, no matter where you are on the planet, casseroles will trump committees every time. Um, because there's just something powerful about sitting down and sharing a meal together. And, it, and you, the, the level of conversation is always different. And, um, you know, and it's just that interaction. And so, you know, we find that, uh, you know, even in Uganda, mm-hmm. oftentimes it's, it's an honor-based culture. And so our teams are often treated like honored guests. And that can be really awkward, especially mm-hmm. for such a casual American culture that we are, you know, where... Where it's okay to say, oh, no, thank you, when somebody offers you a gift. Well, not only that, we're a, you know, we're a culture without a king. We're a, we're a, we're a culture that values the value of an individual. Yeah. And so having this hierarchy of, of setting people apart is something that we are uncomfortable with. So when they yeah. treat us as honored guests, sometimes one of the things they want to do, for instance, is say, well, you come over to this room, we've prepared a special meal for you, and everybody else at this community is going to eat a different meal over here, you know, and, and I understand what they're trying to do, but one, some of the things that have been most powerful is when we've politely insisted to say, hey, we really appreciate this, but let's take our meal together. Let, whatever it is, even if it means we're all eating rice and beans <laughs> or, or, or whatever, um, can we please eat with you? Yeah. Because we want to know you. And that has been powerful because they, they realize um, that we are serious about relationship and really wanting to know who they are. So, so when you come to a new place, you're, you're trying to find somebody new for a tank. Mm-hmm. So when you try and build that relationship, you do it through meals oftentimes? Oftentimes meals or just, or just taking the time to sit together. You know, yeah. just, when you take focused time on anybody... You know, that's, that communicates a priority, One of the, especially contrasted with our culture. I mean, you know, I've got my Droid Pro on my hip here, and, you know, it's, it's helping me do 10 things at once. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so unusual to be focused in our, in our culture and in our lifestyle. And so in, U, in Uganda, to stop everything you're doing, to interrupt your work, to interrupt your, your, you know, traveling around and stuff, and just sit under a tree in the shade... And get to know a local community leader and say, tell me your story. Tell me yeah. about your family. Um, just having that focus to say, I've traveled, you know, seven or 8,000 miles. And what I want to do right now is listen to you. Yeah. I mean, that, that communicates a lot of saying, I value you. Please help me to understand who you are. And, and it really builds a, a strong rapport. Yeah, as, as a 
as a pastor who's try, constantly trying to create some sort of worldview, and when you're trying to raise money for these different projects and stuff, mm -hmm. people are constantly saying, well, we have needs here. We need these things here. Or what we're constantly asked is like, what we really love is the person that goes to the hospice in South Africa. They say, we really want somebody to go with us. More than anything, we want somebody to go with us. And you're right. saying, we, we really want somebody to go with us. And we have people in the church like, well, we don't need to go. We could use that money to spend the money. And the thing that I constantly hear from both people who have come over from Africa, from you and, and from others who have spent time over there, is that mm -hmm. people oftentimes in third world countries feel like they're beneath. They see America through media and different things like that. And right. They feel like they're beneath us. And they mm -hmm. automatically almost associate us with those people they see on TV. And so that somebody who's an American would take the time to leave and come spend time with them automatically gives them this essential feeling of self-worth yeah and it gives them this pride that maybe they wouldn't rather have and it's so important to do it that way and that's critical yeah you know i get asked all the time because it's expensive to go to uganda I mean, this is not you know hopping on a plane and you know i could have breakfast here in, in rochester and i could you know have dinner in the dominican republic or yeah. haiti or, or even mexico um, and there's nothing wrong with those places to do work there. Uh, I'm just saying they're, they're very accessible. But to go to Uganda, it costs a lot more. Yeah. And it costs about as much to go on a two-week trip with us as it does to sponsor a, a, a water project. Mm -hmm. And so people all the time are asking, why should people go when for the same money they could bring clean water to a community? And that's a sober question we should always ask. We yeah. should always ask that. But here's what I say is, I say, you know, like you said, it communicates such value and it, it turns that person into an ambassador. You go, and there's something that you're exposed to that, you know, you can never you lose that, that, you know, you understand what it feels like, smells like, tastes like to be in that place. You've touched these people. You shook hands with them. You've sat around at their table or you've walked the red dirt roads with them. And, and here's the other thing I say. There's someone else I know that, that bought the ticket, yeah. that went the distance, that paid the price of a journey to connect with us. And so we go because that's how Jesus did it, you know? Yeah. And so there's a model of, of that sacrifice that's kind of, you know, that's we see in going and actually being there. And, and it really does. I mean, it's, it communicates things that you cannot do by sending a check. Yeah, one of the things that, we, we, that I hear people constantly say is that it, it takes somebody who's a supporter and turns them into an advocate. It's the yeah. difference between somebody who raises money for a disease or for a problem and then someone who is experience that disease mm -hmm. or had somebody very close it becomes very real to them and, right. and instead of it just being something that they care about it becomes something that's in their life that they have it becomes something that they can no longer separate themselves because it yeah. is a part of them absolutely it, it, there's so many subtle things that you pick up on from being in you know to, to drive the roads of uganda and to walk the footpaths of uganda there's things that you see there and that you hear there and you feel there that you understand in a way that is almost impossible to translate into photos and, and video and, and stories. I mean, you can do a lot through those medium, but to really be there, you're immersed in it and you understand. You know, when you, you know, when, you know the first time that, you know, I sat next to my friend Elijah Sebulamu and I put my arm around his shoulders, you know, as a friend, and realized that my arm was was bridging across his shoulders, which were, I mean, just the muscles in yeah. his body. I, I could tell this is a body that has lived a life of physical labor. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, those subtle moments where all of a sudden something, a tiny little action becomes a huge impression as you realize 
this is a this is a guy that has lived a life that I know nothing about, and it really connects with you in a way to go, wow, I, this is something that impacts me in a way I didn't expect. Yeah. All right. So now let's get back to to sure. our story of where you're. All right. So you're at the vineyard. How do you move into this? How do you become the director of this water project? But when you become <laughs> a part of it, it's it's really at its beginning, its infancy stage. Oh yeah, when it's starting. So right. so the the quick stepping stones were you know I was, I was a purchasing agent at the vineyard. Uh, from there, I uh, was invited to uh, work at uh, on Roberts Wesleyan College's mm-hmm. campus um, when they outsourced their bookstore. You know, because again, I was in the bookstore mm-hmm. industry before, so that that was a fun time to go back to my alma mater and uh, do that for a year and from there then I spent five years working with my wife she's a Mary Kay sales director mm-hmm. <clears throat> and oddly that's where I really learned how to lead and manage people well yeah. because you're working in a in an environment that's all women so you're working in relationship 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 and that really honed those experiences which really helped prepare me for what I'm doing now and from there I then began to work uh, as a technical director at our church, doing lighting and sound. Mm-hmm. And, and then from there, <laughs> Isaiah 6 Ministries needed a road manager. And, uh, and so I started traveling with this uh, Christian band and ministry all over the Northeast U.S., mm-hmm. um, you know, doing lighting and sound and things like that. And it was in that context, I was working with them, when I crashed a barbecue and met uh, Jordan Samba, who's from Uganda, who was in country for a leadership conference. And in that conversation, everything changed. And uh, just really was captured, you know, hearing him talk about how wonderful and amazing his, his country was, how beautiful the people are in the land, but how, you know, desperate the challenges are and how they live with no margin and, and how the basic needs for water um, affect everything. And that really captured my heart and realized it went quickly from, gosh, someone should do something to, well, I guess I'm someone. <laughs> Shouldn't I do yeah. something? And so it was under the covering of Isaiah 6 Ministries at the time that, um, you know, I was given the freedom to kind of pull the string on the sweater, so to speak, and say, hey, let's see what we can do with this. So now how do we go from this barbecue, and it's just this idea, to where now you have purchased a new area, you've got this new office, you've now fundraised 69 tanks. And not only, they don't only do tanks, but you guys have been <laughs> integrally involved It's Specifically with our ministry, we've sponsored a tank, and now we're looking at some different options on ways to try and create more community investments. So you do more than just that. So how do you go from this little idea at a barbecue to expanding into kind of what it's become? You know, one step at a time, I guess. You know, part of it is relationships are our currency. And we put a tremendous amount of trust in the the people we work with in Uganda. Um, It is absolutely um, a partnership. It's not something that we're doing for them. It's something that we're doing together. And and so, for instance, people say, well, how did you come across this idea of of rainwater tanks instead of wells? Well, you know, I'd love to say I'm just that smart, but I'm not. Uh, I was talking to Pastor George, and he said, we get a lot of rain, and I think rainwater rainwater collection would be a good idea. And from there, it was just homework, you know, doing yeah. research and trying to understand how viable is this? Who else is doing this? So a lot of it is just, you know, being in relationship and listening to the needs. Um, you know, what, is it, what, are the, what are the assets they have in these communities? What are their skills? What are they good at? What can be done and sustained in that community, in their economy? And then on our side... You know, we have a glut of information accessible to us. Yeah. You know, Americans, our culture, we are innovators. 
We are dreamers. We have, you know, and that's a strength in our in our culture that we can partner with our Ugandan brothers and sisters with their work ethic and their industriousness, and we can say, all right, rainwater, great. Hey, I, I came across this idea, this idea, and this idea, and we can put them together and put into a system mm-hmm. that now we can do this fast and efficiently, and and it really is that collaboration. So it, it you know, you're. you're taking a lot of the lead from what is available in the community, what's already in place. And that's partly a theological um, value of saying, I assume we're not bringing Jesus someplace that he hasn't already been for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah. Know? He's, he's already been there. He is there. He, we're just, we're joining him. We're not bringing him. We're joining him there active in a community. And so what is it, you know, listen, watch, feel, what is it, God, that you're already participating in you've already started and then how do I just fit in with that now specifically miles wise how far away is Uganda from like Egypt in Gosh. that area <laughs> from Egypt I'm not sure I mean it, we're probably talking I don't know 3,000 miles yeah okay um, for, I mean from where we're sitting now my GPS will tell us we're about 7,000 miles from, yeah. from Uganda <laughs> so but I just I always find this interesting in that you know the church moved so quickly in, in the early times from the Israel area to the Egyptian area. So it was closer to Uganda to begin with than it was <laughs> to America. So yes. the, the idea that sometimes we think that, you know, the church, these people don't have any contact. Well, it's, there's definitely some. Yeah. But there's people who, I mean, the, <clears throat> people who don't know this, who are just saying, just thinking Uganda and Africa. I mean, there are churches, you're working with churches there already that have been there. So there's Christian sure. communities there. So you, you're helping aid them. In different things in different ways in fact one of the things that surprises a lot of people is there's more professing Christians per capita in Uganda than in the United States mm-hmm. now the challenge that they face and they they understand this is the 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 depth of maturity is limited because yeah. in you know 72 to 78 and even after that under Idi Amin uh, and then under Okello um, you know pastors Ugandan pastors were killed and deported and you know it, whatever whatever they could get their hands on, they would tear that down. And so, a whole mentoring generation into the church was wiped out. And so that's a challenge now because you find many situations where you know you would be a pastor because you met Christ three years ago, yeah. and I would be I would not be a pastor because I just met him this year. You know, yeah. But give me another year, and who knows? I might be an apostle. You know. Yeah. And so you 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 have um, a a very passionate, sincere, zealous uh, Christian community that doesn't necessarily have a lot of educational depth. You know, pastor, there's many pastors that haven't gone to any Bible school or any had any formal Bible training, and so um, it's you know, and no disrespect intended. Yeah. I mean, they are trying to do the best they can, but um, it presents some real challenges to to seeing some sound theology taught and imparted to the to the Christian community there. So now. You talked a little bit about people being surprised. So say somebody, uh, they, they supported a tank, they want to go. They want to go over there. Okay, what what can someone expect that goes on a trip with you? Well, our trips, I love our trips. I love what we get to do. I love introducing people to Africa, and I love what Africa has to invest in them, <laughs> as well as what they have to bring to, to share out of their own life with the people they meet. Um, our, our trips have a few priorities. First of all, we have what we call site work. So we're going to our, our new installations that, that have gone in since our last time in country. Um, we're in country every four to six months. And 
so we're going there. We're first of all documenting it, photos, video. Uh, we're doing interviews with the people in the community to try and get their story. Uh, just sitting down and saying, how has your life changed? What's been impacted? Is there, and is there anything we can quantify? You know, if we're at a school, we're saying, what, have you seen attendance change because of this water source? Have you seen a disease um, outbreak change in these families? Um, have you seen test scores go up? Employment, what can we measure to help us understand whether this is really making a difference or not? So site work. Um, also, there's the relational side. We've brought people, you know, many times who have been sponsors, they represent the sponsoring group to a community so that now they're saying this is not just a, a pin on a map somewhere hanging on a wall this is hey this person represents the group that raised the money and this is the community you helped and it becomes a relationship mm -hmm. and so that's powerful so it's site work we're also doing some pre-sites where we're saying let's visit a community that needs this and evaluate what they need and bring back their story to share with people that are thinking about sponsoring the other thing we do is um, we also do a general just try to um, expose our teams to the to the whole gamut of culture. So we're in the cities. We're in the what they would call a suburb of, of the cities. We're in the bush. We go into the slums. We're working in relationship. You know, one of the most powerful things, if you want to understand the scope of poverty in all its different um, aspects, to go to the bottom of the bottom. And for us, it doesn't get any lower than street kids in the slums. Um, and so we have an ongoing relationship with a, with a group of heroes of mine, young guys that used to be street kids that now are on the front lines, you know, working with street kids on the slums of Kampala. And we take our teams in there to partner with these guys and, and, to, and to connect in, in relationships. So just exposing our team to all different aspects and different slices of life in Uganda and also the beauty of it. I mean, it's a beautiful place. Um, and then we always try to give back in different ways relationally. So some kind of a, we, we've done everything from youth conferences to small business workshops to um, just, you know, sitting around with students and, and doing question and answer times just about culture. Um, so some kind of a cultural exchange. We've done music. We've done all kinds of things like that. So it's, it's those major aspects, site work, cultural exposure, and then relational exchange. All right. So in the way of advocacy, um, you've also done something new. Uh, I, I thought it was really creative. The, the Uganda 23, is that right? Yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what Uganda 23 is. Uganda 23 was a film initiative that uh, we did in partnership with uh, a couple of guys um, that uh, have a, a production company called Unparalleled Media. Um, so this is Ben Hall and Josh McGrath and a few people they, they have as part of their little consortium. And and these guys uh, were part of some groups that we worked with in northern New York, some college campuses and some churches up there. Um, and they approached us and said, we really think that you have a story that needs to be told in a, you know, in a really good way. And, and uh, we want to produce a short you know, documentary about this. And so we took this film crew um, over with us and they spent a month in Uganda with one of our teams and then also traveling around with one of our key relationships as a guide. Uh, our friend Collins Alanetwa, and uh, he's one of those guys that mm -hmm. used to, you know, be in the slums and things like that, and, and uh, could really guide them through a lot of different aspects of the culture and community and the geography. And they wanted to capture the story of of what does the water crisis look like in relationship, you know, in real lives and real people, and uh, and how does you know what we do impact that? So what does what does the problem look like up close? 
What does our solution look like up close? And then, you know, open the conversation for people to say, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond? And, and so that's been a, it's been really exciting. We just released the film in, uh, on Christmas day. And so we're just now starting to schedule screenings and things like that, where we can go into homes or uh, businesses or schools, churches, and show the film and get people talking and, and then challenge them to say, you know, what are you going to do? What, what is it that you could do to respond to this, to be involved? So now somebody that wants to see that film, is there a place they can see it online or is it, who do they, con- how do they set something like that yeah. up? Well, first of all, they can, everybody can see the film by going to Uganda23.com. And the reason it's Uganda23 is it's a 23-minute film. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, it, just the title alone is representative of us as an organization. We're not looking to distract people from what's really important, yeah. which is the people. And so you'll see in the film, you know, it's, it's about the content of the film, not even about the title. <laughs> and, uh, and it's about the people of Uganda. It's, it's hardly, you know, you only see me in one part even. Um, it's, it's about the Ugandans. Um, so you can go to Uganda23.com. Also, if you go to Vimeo, Vimeo.com, you can, uh, the film is on Vimeo, and you can download it and actually use it. You can download it and show it and save it to your computer and, and share it at will with whoever you want. And so that's a great way for people that are interested to see it and share it with the, with the people that are in their lives. If people are interested in scheduling a screening or, or getting us to come into their schools, their churches, their campuses, or even we're starting to do these neighborhood kind of gatherings where people say, hey, look, I want to get my neighbors or I want to get my coworkers together at my house. We'll have some food. We'll show the film and just get a conversation going. Um, you know, they can contact us. Uh, they can contact info at ugandanwaterproject.com or they can go to our website, ugandanwaterproject.com and, and contact us. There's a form on the bottom of the pages where they can contact us. And, uh, and just, let's just schedule it, you know, and that's something that we're starting to do. And we really love it because that's, that gets it into relationship and into people's lives. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's great. And now all these people have been wondering, all right, this is supposed to be a podcast about ministry in Upper New York. What <laughs> is in Upper New York? Now, they're doing things over overseas, but they're doing some great things in Upper New York. And one of the things that's almost uh, kind of come out of this relationship that you had built with Isaiah 6 and, and these different people is... You all have recently just planted a church called Grace Life Avon, right? Yeah, and that's not really, you know... It's, well, it's not necessarily a connection with you, got it, but it has yeah. to do with you. And Absolutely. we're talking about things that are going on. Absolutely. So I'm transitioning to another great thing that you're involved with in the way of ministry in upstate New York. So tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about Grace Life Avon. How, how did the idea behind Grace Life Avon get started? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Derek Lewandowski, who is uh, the, the director for uh, Isaiah 6 Ministries, and he and I really uh, founded the Water Project together, um, and uh, he's, he and his wife continue to serve on our board. Um, we've got a, a strong relationship, and, and really, you know, their heart has always been for, you know, relational mis- ministry um, in the Northeast, and then um, more recently, you know, he, he's, the way he'll say it is, you know, for years he's always, you know, said to the Lord, you know, I'll, every once in a while I'll throw out this, uh, this church planting boomerang. You know? <laughs> and Lord, if you want to catch it, you let me know. But otherwise, if it comes back to me, I'll assume it's not time to do that. And not that long ago, you know, he really felt like he threw that out there and the Lord said, yeah, now. And, um, and their perspective is, um, you know, is, there's all kinds of great churches doing great things in this area. And, uh, and so we don't need a new church because there's something not being done. It's just the reality that there's more people that need Jesus. Yeah. And there's more people that need 
um, to be reached and in community. And none of our churches have the capacity to uh, to uh, take on all of the people that need Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so um, you know, his challenge was, you know, I remember one conversation where he said, he goes, uh, "We shouldn't we shouldn't ask ourselves, do we really need another church in Avon?" Yeah. We should be asking ourselves, why aren't we, why aren't we starting uh, another 10 churches in Avon, you know, for instance? That just happens to be where he lives. Yeah. And, um, and so the idea behind it was, um, you know, a church that, again, is about reaching people where they're at. Um, it's, a, it's a cell group-based uh, format where they still meet every week. But the, the real fabric of this church is about their home groups, their community groups, and about coming together, sharing a meal, sharing life, being in each other's lives, and building what I like to call necessary relationships. What's interesting is, it's not, that's not my home church. Yeah. But we participate with them from time to time because we just, you know, we love what they're doing. I was there last night, for instance, yeah. you know, just to, to, to be part of what they were doing that night and, uh, and to stay connected in a relationship. But it's been awesome to see how they're trying to make an impact right where they are to meet needs and, and, and bring things together. They're doing a thing um, like every, every couple months where they do a, an open mic night at the Avon Inn. And, uh, and they get people in the community in, in there and they do live music. And it's just a fun time to, to be part of the community, just trying to find out where the community's already at instead of trying to drag the community kicking and screaming into a building or a meeting. Yeah, I mean, so I know when it comes to trying to do things creatively in the way of ministry, uh, this idea of church planting is something that can be overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah. And so the cell group model from all the people that I've talked to in the way of church planting really seems to be the basis of where we're moving to. And it, it makes sense. You want to build the community that you can worship out from. So yeah. and so that seems to be kind of what they did. And mm-hmm. so they started out by doing small groups first, correct? Yeah, you know, and it was that idea of let's let's begin to get into each other's lives and, and to, you know, pursue the Lord together, to learn and grow and worship together, to raise our families together, to, you know, to spend time together, you know. And, and I think that, you know, too often it's easy with the compartmentalized life that we can lead to have our church time be more or less just another thing on the agenda instead of something that's really part of the fabric of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we have to fight for that. You know, it's it's too easy for it to be, well, this is my church time and this is my work time and this is yeah. my family time. Um, and distinction is important in our lives. It's good to have boundaries. But the reality is our faith is supposed to be a foundation out of which we live. And, and you know, and it is... It, it, it requires more vulnerability. It requires more of us to say, I'm going to live my life in a way where, you know, you're involved, you know, where you're part of it, where um, we've got access and when, you know, you know if I'm doing well and you know if I'm not doing well and you're willing to come up and say, hey, you know, how can I be part of helping you? In First Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about how they came and they shared their lives. And they, yeah. That is such a terrifying idea of sharing your life. I mean... That's a big commitment. I mean, right. think of your wedding vows. It's like you're sharing your life with somebody. That's yeah. what the church is supposed to be. We're the bride of Christ. We're sharing our lives with one another. Yeah. We're sharing our lives with Christ. So that's just an interesting concept, but we kind of push ourselves away from that. And our culture doesn't like that idea because like you were saying yeah. earlier, we like to be individualistic. So bringing it back to Uganda, mm-hmm. this idea of community, mm-hmm. um, how do you see the difference in how community plays out in Uganda and how it plays out here, 
And have you noticed any changed effects in how Ugand or how Ugandan community plays out now that they're having more experience and more impact in their lives from Westerners? Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, I've learned over the last few years of doing the work we do is a, a complete new definition of poverty. That poverty is really about broken relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not about not having stuff. Um, there's material poverty, which is about not having the resources you need. But real poverty at its heart is about broken relationships. First of all, a broken relationship with, with God, who is the only one who ultimately really knows what we're created for and yeah. whose hopes and dreams for us are really where we find fulfillment. But also the, the, a broken relationship with ourselves, with one another, and with the world around us. And so what's interesting is we as Americans have a poverty of relationship and community. You know, yeah. we... One of our strengths is individuality and liberty and personal responsibility. But one of the challenges is sometimes that makes us really um, makes it tough for church life a lot of times. It makes because we're poor relationally. You know, I can remember hearing a story of a woman who died and she'd been dead for three weeks, and the only reason her neighbors knew is because yeah. they complained uh, about the length of her grass to the uh, to the community that she was in. You know, the homeowners association. Um, and, and we can live from our, from our house to our garage to our cubicle but to our garage to our house yeah. and not interact. In, in Uganda, they are materially poor, but they are commun- community rich. And so people know what's going on in one another's lives, partly because they have to interact yeah. with one another. You know, it's, it's, it can come down to simple scenarios, you know, where, you know, this guy is building, he's building a new uh, pen for his chickens, but he doesn't own a saw whenever he needs a saw. <laughs> his neighbor has a saw, so he goes and borrows the neighbor's saw and in the process gets to know what's going on in his life and they share, they have that exchange. It's it, as simple as sharing the material goods that are necessary to sustain life. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and in the process, everybody knows what's going on to, you know, with what we do with water. People are walking every day to the place to get water, whether it's the watering hole or to one of our tanks. And, yeah. and in the process of walking to go get the water together, they meet and see each other. And they're just a lot more interconnected on a daily level. And so they know what's going on. They know what they celebrate together. They grieve together. They are just aware. There's, a, there's such an increased awareness of what's going on. And they know, they know one another, they know everybody in the community, and they know what's going on in their lives. And that's just tremendous. And our teams are dramatically impacted by that. And, you know, I would say if there's, if the changes I see is, the changes in us is we have more gratitude um, for one another and uh, an increased desire for community. And the, the impact we see on a lot of the people in Uganda is, you know, our ability to, to dream crazy dreams and go courageously over personal development and personal responsibility has helped some of the individuals that we've gotten to know. And, and there's yeah. been an increased um, ability to look and go, hey, what is our capacity? And we're very procedural. And that can, that can really help for efficiency. And so we're seeing, you know, as we, as we look at a problem and go, well, here's how I would deal with that. Um, I would start with step A. Yeah. You know, and we're starting to see some of the partner communities Break, break their problems down and into a procedure and trying to build a system. And I see that as some of our influence on them. Yeah, your idea of talking about how Uganda is forced into community. I do find it fascinating in American culture, and I'm a terrible offender of this, of how many things we own oh, yeah. that we're only going to use once. Right. You know, 
I love doing work around the house and stuff like that. Well, I need a tile saw. It's like, right. I need to buy a tile saw. That's something I need. But I know 10 people who own a tile saw. Right. And I'm only going to eat, or I'm, I, I need this, right? So it is fascinating that because we have the means to get something or purchase something so that we right. don't have to rely on someone else, we prefer to be able to rely on ourselves. Because we really do. We view it as that's a weakness if I have to rely on someone. Yeah. I, I just yeah. face this because, um, you know, I needed to buy it. I needed to replace my old van. You know, my old van is dying and I need something to replace mm-hmm. it. And, you know, and, and part of me really wanted to buy a Suburban mm. um, because, um, you know, I needed passenger space because I've got a family and I, and I also needed cargo space because I travel and a lot of times I'm taking things to do presentations and things with me. Um, and, and they're comfy. And they're comfy, yeah. and, and it can. And I'm like, and it can haul a trailer if I need to do that. And, and I'm 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 trying to build this case in my yeah. mind. And then I realized I'm like, you know, it, my wife goes, "How many times do you haul a trailer in a year?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, twice." And she goes, "You know, didn't your friend Jim say he's got several trucks and several trailers for his business? And anytime you need that." Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah." And it, it confronts that that we want to, for the sake of convenience and not having to ask. We look at that as a weakness when real, really we need to go, gosh, you know what? Every time I need to borrow that is a chance for me to build a relationship with that person. Yeah. And anytime I can lend something to somebody is a chance for me to build a relationship with somebody. And that's kind of something I need more than what I, what, more than having this stuff and these tools. All right. So now if somebody wants to contact you, get a hold of you, find <laughs> more about this, the best ways to get a hold of you are how? Well, hey, UgandanWaterProject.com is a great you know, resource and you can learn about what we do and that kind of thing. Um, you know, obviously we're on Facebook. We, you know, you can h- hook up with us on there. You can either come to me, James Harrington, I'm on Facebook or the Ugandan Water Project as a fan page. Um, and you can also email us at info at ugandanwaterproject.com. Now, if you're particularly interested in our trips, we've yeah. got a great trip coordinator and, uh, and you can email her at go to Uganda at gmail.com. And uh, we do trips three times a year. That's a great opportunity. Um, but also you can contact us if you're interested in saying, hey, we want to sponsor a water project or we want to have you come to our church or school or business. Um, but yeah, any of those options are, are a great way to get a hold of us. Yeah, and you guys are on Twitter where? At Ugandan Water. Fantastic. Thank you, James, for appeasing me. <laughs> and I'm sure your wife will be so happy that I gave you an opportunity to just talk for an hour and a half today <laughs> so that maybe you're slightly worn out for her later. Okay, great. All yeah. right. See ya. Thanks a lot.